Okay, well, it was either stand-up comedy or the pulpit. I chose well. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. Buenos dias, mis hermanos y hermanas y las bendiciones de Dios es bueno verte without the masks. You know, um, I have really appreciated the songs in seeing the Spanish on the screen. And whenever Goyo comes up and leads it, this last song was especially meaningful because it was slow and I could really follow it clearly. When they're kind of fast, it takes me, a, I'm always about a couple of words behind. But um, you all know that I'm, you know, I tend to be a little bit emotional sometimes. Um, I, I really try to fight it, but the older you get, it just, you know, it's, it's like stopping a cough. You just can't hardly do it. But Anyway, I would often just kind of sit there in the pew and kind of well up, um, you know, not bawl or tear, just kind of well up when I would hear a song sung. It would really touch my heart. Um, but now it's when I hear the Spanish that is sung. And it, it does it practically every time. Porque somos una familia. And it's a good reminder that we are one family. One family in Christ. Somos la familia de Dios. Una familia. So it's good to see you. It's good to see everyone today. You know, uh, for those who may not know it, and, and I suspect that's only a handful, uh, before we arrived here in 2005, I came from the Air Force Academy, um, where I was a chaplain there. That was my last assignment. I was a Air Force chaplain on active duty for over 30 years. And the last assignment we had was at the academy, and I want you to know that where we lived, no one else lived around us. Actually, there was one more house. They always have the, the senior chaplain and, and, and the deputy chaplain uh, very close to the cadets. It made a lot of sense. All the other housing was nearly in the springs. It was down the valley, um, away from the campus, but we weren't. Our, our house was literally at the foot of Pikes Peak. Uh, at about 7,500 feet above sea level, and my backyard uh, was as large as I wanted to mow. And you know, we had a relatively small yard in the back. But uh, every morning in the spring and summer and, and early fall, really the winter too, but I, it was too dark and I didn't want to get up quite that early, but I would get up uh, normally, even in the winter, about 4.30, to um, sometimes as late as five, and just to get ready for the day and have, you know, had a full day. Uh, but I always walked to work because I was only a couple of hundred meters from that beautiful uh, cadet chapel. And um, I would get a cup of coffee, got dressed, get a cup of coffee, and open up our back door, which there was the mountain, and, you know, it was just typical rocky-looking backyard, but the reason I wanted to be on, the, um, on that patio is because I would always see a herd of mule deer. That's Colorado Springs in the background, but um, not just four or five like you'll see in this picture, but I'm talking 25 or 30. And does, for whatever reason, they were never afraid of me, and they would always uh, eat grass, the stuff that I had mowed, all the way up nearly to the patio. So we're, I'm, I'm telling you, this is, you know, God is my witness, as Paul would say. So you know, we, that was maybe 20 feet from the back door. 
uh, from, from Joe David to me. And I sit there with a cup of coffee, and there they were, just not one, but a, a whole herd. And uh, it was a mountaintop moment for me. It was a, a time that no matter what was happening in the valley, that metaphorically at the, their own base, it was, it was just my quiet time. Generally, though, about 50, not 50 feet, probably 30, 40, 50 yards away was this guy. And uh, it was as if he was saying, I don't want to be crude, but it's as if he was saying, leave my girls alone. <laughs> and I would always whisper back and I would say, no problem. <laughs> and, and I'd always check the back door. It was about five, six, seven feet from me. And if he ever moved, and sometimes he did, he'd start moving toward me, I'd go inside. You know, I, I needed a pinch runner even then, but <laughs> there's no way I could outrun this guy. But I want you to know that for me, those were mountaintop experiences. And then I would go to work. Um, that's the inside of the, of the cadet chapel there. And then, of course, those are the, those are the cadets meandering about on the terrazzo, on the, on the terrazzo, and um, on that large open area that they would move to and fro from their classes and to the various buildings. Um, you know, the valleys, church, don't have to be miserable. They just have to be laborious. They don't have to be... I don't want to go to the valley. They just have, they're a labor of love, unlike the mountaintop where it's a complete restoration. Now, we've all these kind of mountaintop experiences, wilderness trek. And I know that the Johnsons and several of you have gone on the treks. You've, you've uh, hiked other mountains. And the goal, of course, is to, uh, is, I mean, the, the, the actual journey is fun. I haven't gone on trek, but, you know, I've done some hiking. Not quite like my brother Ken has. But anyway, but, but the joys in the hiking, but the real moment of pleasure is when you're on the summit, you're on the mountaintop. And you really sense God's presence all around you. There are other mountaintop experiences that we've had right here. Every time we, um, we go to Winterfest for the young ones, or Winter Flame, or Antioch Bible Camp, how many people in this congregation, and, and I don't know, there may be one or there could be a hundred, how many of you were uh, actually baptized at ABC? Show of hands. Yeah, go ahead and raise your hand, you know. Now, I, see, I see several. I see several. Uh, not just uh, young at one time, but now, you know, in their 20s, maybe even 30s. I don't know. But ABC was always a mountaintop experience. So you don't have to be on that literal mountaintop to have that kind of experience. Every time we get away, our brother Andrew had that sabbatical, that 30 days of rest, it's a moment when the Lord restores our souls, you know, leads us beside still waters and into green pastures. Those are moments of restoration, mountaintop experiences. And mountaintops inspire us, but it's the valley that defines us. It's the valleys of the shadows of death 
that mature us. If we lived on the mountaintop, we would see God and feel his presence, if you will, um, but it would be somewhat empty in that we've never experienced the valleys. So I believe what the Apostle Paul is doing in 1 Thessalonians is at the very beginning sharing the mountaintop and the valley. But before we get to 1 Thessalonians, um, I want to do this before I go to the next slide. I'm, I'm reminded that sometimes we think perhaps that Jesus never experienced the mountaintops, only the Gethsemanes. Father, remove this cup from me, yet not my will. Your, you know, your will be done, Matthew 26. Um, John 17, 30. Um, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I do? You know, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And so you have, we understand the valleys of our Lord and Savior, but he was also on the mountaintop. Every time he went to prayer. Do you remember the text in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration? Uh, Jesus had just uh, left Caesarea Philippi. I don't have a map here, but Caesarea Philippi um, bordered Syria. And so he had Syria and Galilee, the northern part of Palestine. And at Caesarea Philippi, uh, Jesus is the one who, who, who asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And, and they replied, well, some say that you're, uh, that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. And then, of course, Christ asked, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ the Son of God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. You are this pebble, but upon this rock I will build my church. Upon your incredible confession, that is true. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God, and I will build my church, and not even hell can keep us from breaking down hell's gates on earth. We are going to go and provide salvation to creation. And then they leave Caesarea Philippi, and you know where Jesus wants to go? Up the mountain. Now, we don't know which mountain... Um, although the nearest mountain to Caesarea Philippi was Mount Hermon. And there the Lebanon range, the highest mountain in Syria. Some say Tabor, others say Hermon, but I think it might have been there. We don't know. But, but anyway, Mount Hermon was, was 9,000 feet above sea level, further up than I was at the academy at 7,500. Not quite like Pox, one of the 14ers at, you know, one of the 58, 14,000 plus peaks in Colorado. I think Pike's about 14,100 and something. But, uh, but nonetheless, Mount Hermon was the highest area around there. And so from sea level, they start scaling the mountain. Jesus, he was a hiker, good shape. Jesus and, and Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And they go all the way up, it seems to imply, to the summit. And while on the summit... Peter and James and John see the face of Jesus glowing. Not just like the sun in your face. I mean the Shekinah, the glowing of the face. 
And the Bible says, Matthew 17, that his garments were white, not like snow. They were white like light, this glowing presence. And what does Peter say? He says, Lord, it's really good that we're here. We're going to build three Sukkots, three uh, booths for worship. One for you and one, oh, pardon me, I'm ahead of myself. Then Elijah and Moses appear. Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, Elijah, the great prophet. Lord, we're going to build three booths, one for you, one for Elijah, one for, one for Moses. And then all of a sudden, a cloud, not a dark cloud. Matthew says, a cloud of light overshadowed them. And the moment this brilliance hit Peter and James and John, what did they do? They did what you would do and what I would do. They fell on their face. They knew, I don't, I don't belong here. I need to, I don't belong here. You know, Peter in the boat, I'm a man, you know, I'm a man of sin. I, I, you know, get me out of this place. So they fell on their face, and the voice came from the heavens, and the voice said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And the next thing Peter knows is Jesus is touching him. And Peter looks up. He doesn't see Moses or Elijah. He sees Jesus. And so James and John and Peter get up from the dirt of the ground, and Jesus said, tell no one of this vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And you know what they did next from this incredible mountaintop moment? They climbed down the mountain, they joined the other disciples, and they head south. The Bible would always say going up to Jerusalem, but they're going south to Jerusalem. Do you know the timing of it? Whenever Jesus arrives in Bethany and Jerusalem, he has a week to live. Just before his arduous week, he goes to the mountaintop. And from the mountaintop to the valley. What about Peter? I wish we had more time to go into all of this. I need to get to 1 Thessalonians because it does connect. But Peter goes from this mountaintop moment to the valley with Jesus, walking. It's during the course of that, of those few weeks that Jesus says, everybody will fall away. And Peter says, when he's washing, Peter says, no, Lord, I will never fall away, John 13. No matter what happens, I will not ever deny you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows in the morning, this was Thursday night, you will have denied me three times. And of course, our Lord, that was the Passover meal, the Last Supper, early Friday morning, he's arrested from Gethsemane. He's uh, falsely accused and, and goes through this mockery of a trial. And while he's going through this mockery of a trial, Peter is around in the courtyard warming himself. And three times they ask Peter, you're one of them. They tell him, you're one of them. I know your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. And three times Peter said, I don't know the man. Three times. And on the third time, he hears the rooster crow. 
And John records, he weeps. He wept bitterly. Church, these mountaintop experiences inspire us. But it's the valley that defines who we are. It's the valley that grows us. Never be afraid of the valley. Without the valley, there will be no growth. Without the mountaintops, you'll despair in the valley. You put the two together, and you're complete. You're mature in Christ. The Apostle Paul was so pleased with the Thessalonian church. Why? Because he had established it in only three weeks. We've been working through, for those who haven't been here, 1 Thessalonians, and we're coming to um, to the section on the labor of love. And we'll go through that passage in just a moment very quickly. But I want you to know that the Apostle Paul is in Corinth when he writes the Thessalonians. And he's so concerned about them because he had only been there three weeks and then he was run out of town. And Silas and Timothy, they go to Berea. And from Berea, Paul has to go escape for his life. He goes all the way up to Athens, from Athens to Corinth. He sends for for Silas and Timothy to join him. He asks, how are the Thessalonians? He doesn't ask. How are the Philippians? They were also there. How are the Bereans? He was also there. How are the Athenians? He was also there. He wants to know, how are the Thessalonians? Why? Because they were a three-week-old baby church when I left. They were being persecuted. They were being beaten up, and probably some have died. And later, Timothy says, some have died. And and Acts 17 tells us what the complement was of the church at Thessalonica. There were Jews, and there were leading women, and there were devout Greeks, and there were pagans. Look at the group. I mean, other than the Jews and the devout Greeks, the pagans and the leading women knew nothing about Yahweh. And so you've got this immature church in Paul's concern. So he sends Timothy. Timothy comes back with this report. He said, wow, Paul, they're not only only making it, they are thriving. And Paul is elated. So he writes a letter. They had some concerns, but they were growing. Why? Well, apparently they had been both on the mountaintop with Paul and the valley. And in the valleys, the valley at Thessalonica defined the church. And it became one of the strongest bodies of Christ in the New Testament world. And Paul writes about it. And here's how he begins. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, he is saying, I have been told that you are thriving in the valley. I added in the valley. That that your faith is being defined. And the report I'm hearing, I can't believe it. What what, What a movement of the Holy Spirit. Because now you have a work of faith. That's your lifestyle. You understand love is laborious. And for hope, you're patient. And all of these three, these three things, faith and love and hope, 
It's the trilogy that Paul will work out in his other epistles. It, these are landmarks for our Christian walk. If you find your faith waning, those are the three Christian uh, landmarks to look at. <clears throat> What's my faith walk like? Am I really loving agape? Am I loving others? Do I only care about their interests? Or am I self-centered? If, if you're self-centered, then yeah, your faith's going to go awry. Or do you despair with no hope? And Paul would write them and say, wow, your labor of love. Now, we understand the word love. <clears throat> and I was going to go through all of these, but for the sake of time, we'll not do that. But let me remind you of each one. I'm not going to quote them. But in Deuteronomy 6, we have what we call the Shema. You know, love God all your, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. This is, this is what God through uh, Moses, after he comes down Mount Sinai for the fourth time, he, he brings the tablets, and this time he doesn't go back up, they're good. He summons all the Israelites together, at least all the leaders, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you will love the Lord your God. And then he goes through this beautiful text, you know, when you um, lie down, when you rise up, when you walk by the way, and so forth. You will love the Lord your God. The Jews would tack on Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, and those two, uh, those two commandments became their uh, holiest prayer. Really, this one, Deuteronomy 6. At first, it was a confession of faith. Um, I love God with all of my heart, so strength and might. But it became a prayer. And to this day in Nashville, if you were to go to any synagogue, you will hear this. You will hear in Hebrew. You will so you've got the, you, we know what love is. Matthew 22, Jesus reiterates that when he's asked by the lawyer, what's the greatest commandment? Love God. Second is like that. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, describes this kind of agape. Love is patient, kind. It is not jealous or boastful, not, er, uh, not, not arrogant or rude. Uh, love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. You know, love believes, bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. Love never ends. Paul describes agape. But the, the word that I want us to focus and then close with is Paul doesn't say, I thank God remembering your love, your faith, your love, and your hope. <clears throat> he adds these descriptives that are really telling he says, I thank God remembering your walk of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. Well, that takes it to a different level. Love is hard. Ask, ask your, the one sitting next to you. Love is hard. Love has always been hard work. It's enjoyable, but it demands a lot. This was taken right from a Greek lexicon on the word labor, kapas. Toil that produces fatigue and exhaustion. The word that Paul chose to write is defined clearly in toil that produces exhaustion. That's Agape, that's the labor of love. That's what Paul was telling the Thessalonians they were excelling in. First uh, Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, Paul explains that you are being persecuted just like the churches of Judea. 
and you are abounding in agape, abounding in love. How does a pagan, a three-week pagan converted to Christ, or how does, <clears throat> how does one of the leading women of the city, not knowing who God is, or even how does a devout Greek, a God-fearer, or, or even a Jew, how do they, within three weeks of coming to Christ and having the Spirit of God within them, how in the world can they experience the kind of love that our brother Al Darty experienced for 95 years? We buried him on Friday. Talk about laborious, labor of love, and, and you're all there too. From inner city ministry to disaster relief to, you know, coats for the, for the cold. For, you know, I could go on and on with these incredible uh, outpourings of love. Are they easy? They wear you out. They wear you out. And it's not just doing that. Those who teach, those who lead singing, those in the booth, we are una familia de Dios, one family, and we're always tired. <laughs> but that's okay. These are labors of love. On the mountaintop, we see Christ. We see God. In the valley, we walk with the Lord. I shared an example <clears throat> on Friday that I've really hesitated because I don't like sharing more than one illustration, but as I look out, I don't know, there might have been 30 or 40 or 50 of you who were there on Friday. It's a, it really ties this together, so allow me to do it. The story is told of a, of a Broadway actor from New York who is um, traveling through the Midwest in the late 19th century, 1800s. He happens to attend a uh, local little community church, you know, the white buildings with the steeples on it in every western that we see, and probably was really true in the Old West in the century ago. Even today, you can go to our small towns and you can see these little church buildings. I've always wanted to walk in and say, can I just preach? I've never preached in something like this. I just want to preach. <laughs> I'm sure they would say yes, but joke. So anyway, this guy walks, goes to church on Sunday morning, talks to the preacher, the pastor, and he says, listen, I'm a, I'm a renowned actor and I'd like to recite the 23rd Psalm for you. May I do that? And the preacher says, yeah, sure, you can do that. So he gets up and he goes through the entire 23rd Psalm. I'm going to say it, but not meaning to imply because I want to close with it. He, he'll, he'll stand up and say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside the still waters. He, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My, uh, thou anointest my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness... And mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then he sits down, and there's a little applause. You know, wow, that guy's really good. Anyway, toward the end of the service, an older man, always thought of Al, <laughs> I said that Friday, an older man who had just lost his wife asked the well-known preacher, Everybody knew him, there were only 30 or 40 there. If he could just share a few words of gratitude, he gets up there and he thanks the family for supporting him during that very 
horrible time when he just buried his wife. And then he kind of breaks into the 23rd Psalm. You know, but the Lord is my shepherd, and I don't want for anything. And he makes me, you know, he, he, he restores my soul. And yeah, yeah. And he stumbles through it. Well, these 35 or 40 people were just in tears. You know, and so he sits down and the preacher finishes and they all walk outside and there's the actor who's just <laughs> taking all of this in, quite, can't quite get it. And he tells the preacher, he says, you know, um, frankly, I recited that psalm perfectly. <laughs> it was like perfect. And, they, and I had a few people clap, but nobody was moved. But this old man who didn't even get it right Everybody started crying. And the preacher said, Mister, you know the 23rd Psalm. But that brother, he knows the shepherd. Without the valley, you'll never know the shepherd. If we only were restored by the green pastures and the still water and never entered the valleys, we would miss something spectacular. Have you ever thought about that psalm when the David, King David's writing it? He uses the third person in the first three verses. Very impersonal. It's like I'm talking to Joe David. Oh, Joe David, the Lord is my shepherd. He, he uh, leads me beside still waters. He, he, you know, and I go, he, I, I forgot it. How could I forget it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk. He, he makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside the still waters, and he restores my soul, and he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I'm talking to Joe David about God. I'm not talking to the Lord. I'm talking to a buddy of mine. And mountaintop experiences, we see God like Peter and James and John saw this transfigured Christ, but in the end they couldn't look. It's too glorious. It's only in the valley. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he shifts to the second person. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. He's not talking to Joe David. I fear no evil for you are with me. You know, your rod, your staff. That's the difference. The valleys we walk with God. On the summits we see his glory. In the valley we talk to him. So never be afraid of the valleys. Without the valleys you'll never experience God's grace and his love and mercy and forgiveness. You can climb to the mountaintop on occasion and just take it all in, but hurry back to life. That is what defines the church. As I invite my brother shepherds, and I really concur with Joe David's, and I know they were with your thoughts, Joe David, um, wonderful men. 
I love them more than I did in 2005. That's because I didn't know them. I know them now. Better. Anyway, as the shepherds walk forward, we have this great opportunity to say, Lord, thank you for the valley. We come to you in prayer as the body of Christ, and we thank you for allowing me to go through this arduous time. Because if I hadn't lost my job, I wouldn't have drawn nearer to you. Had it not been the illness of my wife, I would not have been on my knees you know, in prayer at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'd be asleep. But because of her illness, we're talking. So you need to really take in the valleys and enjoy them. Don't stay there forever. You'll despair. But enjoy them. And let your life be one of a walk of faith and a labor of love. And next week we'll look at hope that's eternal. As we stand together and sing, brother, everyone stand with me.